Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Paul Garafalo, co-founder and CEO of Locus Biosciences. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Yeah, Rahul, thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Great. So, Paul, to kick us off, talk to us about how you got to where you are today in the arc of your career. So, I am 30 years or so in biopharma. I started my career always kid on the dark side. I was a management consultant with Ernst & Young. And for one of my first assignments, I got deployed to Genentech in the sort of mid-1990s. And life sciences just has a way of, of keeping you magnetically pulled in. And so I've pretty much spent the better part of my career sort of working on clients that range, you know, other biotechs through to groups like Tenet Healthcare and sort of learning the hospital side. And then I moved on and, and I worked as a part of the executive team at Valiant Pharmaceuticals. I was the CIO for those guys and sort of magically one day became head of manufacturing and supply for a short period of time. I, I moved on and became the CTO at Patheon Pharmaceuticals and ended up running worldwide operations for all clinical trial material production around the world. And then that was about enough for me on the corporate biotech side. About seven years ago or so, we started this venture called Locus Biosciences. And it's been a pretty crazy ride ever since. I guess you could say I'm a reformed IT guy that somehow got suckered into transformations and, and ended up just getting deeper and deeper towards owning P&Ls. And then one day, I, I don't even know if you'd want me to touch your computer these days. I, I don't think that's a skill set I bring to the table anymore. Anyway, there's a quick and dirty intro for you. Great. And Paul, what was the biggest learning for you going from being at a pharma company to then going to, let's say, the service provider side with Patheon and then back into R&D? Oh, yeah. I think it's much more of a margin-centric game on the services side. And I must say, when you're in a bigger pharma company where you have a, a vast portfolio of SKUs around the world, it has a sense of sort of you're selling everything from dermatology products, you know, all the way to, let's say, neurology drugs. But there's a big SKU base. So, you, you know, you have a lot of these different types of dynamics of managing a big catalog of drugs. When you go over to the services side, though, I think it's just sort of hyper-focused down on margins, efficiencies, operational excellence, and delivery. But you see a lot more. You see the SKUs, you're dealing with the counts of products and variants, packaging, you know, labeling, all that great stuff. There's just so many more markets and so many more products that you have to worry about. You do tend to see some different trends you know, I'll give you one that people are really, I think, always shocked about. But of all of the emerging products going through CDMOs, 85% of drugs experience at least a 12 to 14 month delay because of CMC hiccups. You know, you're usually dealing on the other side of, you know, with the sponsor, just dumbfounded as to, well, why, why won't this thing scale up to, you know, uh, I can't even get this thing off a five liter line, let, let alone like get this into a 2000 liter tank. It's interesting. 
it becomes an interesting set of trends. But I think the sort of shift back to sort of science focus, it's freeing. You have a lot more flexibility and a lot more money to work with on the sponsor side than you do on the services side. It's a tougher business. Yeah, certainly agree. So talk to us about just the founding story of Locus and how it all came together. Yeah, it was a little bit of serendipity, honestly. I was I had been working to bring together Patheon with DSM Pharma, which at the time was essentially the creation of the, well, certainly one of the top two contract manufacturers worldwide. I actually put the deal together, so I ended up getting tapped to do the post-merger integration. And I was looking to get out. I was kind of doing that as a consultant, and I was offering my time as an exec in residence at NC State University down here in the RTP area. And this PhD candidate walked into this entrepreneurship class with this CRISPR-Cas3 idea, you could say invention, but hadn't even filed any IP yet, and sort of said, you know, the tech transfer office sent me here to figure out what to do with this tech. And we started to work with the professors and started to work with some of the students and realized we probably had something pretty special and got the university to file a sort of a fleet of patents in the early days, real early days, you know, sort of back in 2014, you know, 2015 era. And, you know, we basically, we started a company. At first we thought, hey, this is CRISPR. Let's just try to flip this thing. But Cas3 is like a Pac-Man. It's this giant enzyme that works just like the arcade game, you know, point it towards a target and it just eats something back. You know, obviously versus Cas9 that everybody knows super well, this very precise, you know, double-stranded, you know, break so you can do some gene editing. It was the early days where this great sort of balance of immense freedom to operate the deeper we dug on the legal side and, you know, huge technical challenges to figure out how, how the heck are we going to deliver an enzyme that's 6,000 plus base pairs large and get that into something? How are you going to deliver it? How are you going to control that? And, you know, the early days were they were really fun. I mean, honestly, sort of going from a three and a half billion dollar post-merger integration to within two or three months, starting to figure out, well, how are we going to take these three inventions from these three different professors and like grow enough of this up to sort of even do like a five mouse, you know, in vivo study. Lo and behold, within sort of six to nine months, it looked like we really had some very promising science. We had clearance from the lawyers on FTO. And, you know, it sort of made a personal decision like, yeah, let's try this. This is either going to be a really bad idea and end quickly, or this could be really fun. And we could maybe do something as big as, you know, maybe we could change the world. Maybe we could create a different way of dealing with bacterial infections and bacteria in the body. And that was seven years ago. And, and was that your first time raising capital? Well, we raised billions in debt, but that's a much different game than yeah. raising entrepreneurial seed round fund, Series A, Series B. I had never raised venture. I suppose you could say I never raised friends and family, but that actually wasn't that wasn't very difficult at all. The yeah. Series A was immensely difficult. Yeah. The B has been immensely difficult. You know, it, it's an interesting industry. The private equity and the sort of big corporate, both debt and say capital entities, that, that's much more of what I was used to. And it didn't yeah. parlay so well. Yeah. well. I thought it would be, oh, yeah, we know what's going on. This is going to be fine. Yeah. It was not fine. It was a lot of uh, bruises. 
Yeah, <laughs> somewhat of a similar experience, which is why I asked. So um, now, uh, so for those that are, you know, for those that are listening that are aspiring entrepreneurs, the first time around when you were pitching, what's something that like you didn't know that oh. seems very obvious to you now? Yeah, I had some great friends on the initial board of directors, and they had really solid connections with very much the like pinnacle foundation blocks of venture, if you will. And I, yeah. I got great audiences. I went out and pitched a, a very experienced team. I won't tell you their name. And normally they just come back with a no, right? It was like a friendship connection. And so I got the chance to kind of have coffee with the, with this sort of senior partner that created the firm. And he was like, you have none of this. You need all of this. All of this. You need your target product profile. You need to figure out exactly what you're like. The way he said it is like, you know, pop the cork champagne moment. What is the success in your phase two human efficacy trial look like? And I was like, are you are you kidding? Like we're in a Petri dish in like universities that you want to know. And he's like, yeah, we're not going to give you the money if you can't get it to proof of efficacy. And we're like, yeah, but we're not asking you for money to get that far, but they really want to know that you can get there. And that was a surprise. That was a really big surprise that you had to be so detailed oriented on the end line of, you know, what was the human indication? What was the actual like target endpoint, primary and secondary? And it didn't take us long to get all that. They knew how to do all that. I was just very, I was shocked. And I, I passed that little piece on of advice to as many people that will listen. Yeah, it's a great point that investors want the entrepreneur to have that vision and a path as to how you get there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul, with that wonderful background on you, before we get into the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Locus, it'd be really helpful if you could set the stage for us in terms of how you view the infectious disease landscape and you know, adjacently related the microbiome landscape as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's any secret. The infectious disease industry is um, a graveyard of either bankrupt entities and or struggling and small numbers of, of venture companies. I think when you look at the industry as a whole, you're pretty much trying to justify taking out the commercial markets, which have been holistically genericized. So commercially, you have very small dollar, high volume drug products that you're trying to displace. And you're sort of fighting against this future wave of multi-drug resistance that we all know is coming, but don't quite know how to address. And so I think you have a tremendous amount of investor skepticism and therefore a lot of sort of you know venture no-fly zones. So that's that space. And then on, on the microbiome side, I think you had enormous promise in the microbiome, maybe seven to, you know, maybe you could even say five to seven years out or at least backwards. And I think all of the first generation products have not performed well. I've had pretty high profile failures. And so now you have, I think, a, uh, you know, an existential crisis as well for investors that sort of went into that that zone. So you have, a, I think on the surface, a lot of superficial hesitation to move high-priced therapeutics into the realm of bacteria. And I think there's reasons on both to see a lot of promise, but you have to have, I think, vision to get in there. So what we tend to see is 
the strategics actually have that vision, which is maybe opposite to what you hear in the in the market of numerous strategics exiting the antibacterial space. I think what we see with, I'm sure we end up talking about it, but we have a major $800 million collaboration with Johnson & Johnson to address two very critical pathogens, pseudomonas and staph. You know, I think you see a, a huge amount of investment coming from that entity to get back into the space. And then on the microbiome side, I would say it's not lost on any of our partners what the parlayability is between precision removal of bacteria for infections and precision removal of bacteria for other therapeutic areas like immunology or oncology. And if you take a 10,000 or 50,000 foot view of human health, I think it's quite clear to everyone that the bacteria that you have in your body has some direct relationship to disease. And whether it's exacerbating disease symptoms, causing diseases to come forward earlier that maybe you're genetically predisposed to, or maybe even long-term exposure of bacteria causes those. And you're, you're talking about everything from cancer to you know, autoimmune disorders. And so I think the strategics smell that. I think they know that. I think you see a lot of investment that's coming around the fringes and even the initial waves of investment that kind of failed out. I think you still see these entities coming after this space because it probably holds one of the greatest long-term potential areas for therapeutics that we know in the field of medicine. So pressure and persistence is probably the key to cracking this thing open. Yeah, I agree. And so with that, with that entree, let's talk a little bit about Locus and your approach to infectious diseases and the underlying science and the platform that you're working on. Yeah, no, great. Locus is in the business of making fixed cocktails of bacteriophage viruses that are essentially engineered to carry a variety of different payloads. Our favorite is CRISPR-Cas3, that Pac-Man I was describing earlier. That essentially takes us to potency levels that are two, three even four log more potent than standard of care antibiotics, and they are exquisitely precise. So if we're going into the human body to just take out, let's say, pseudomonas, we take out pseudomonas and nothing else. And so much like gene editing and precision therapeutics on the human health side that use a virus and essentially use it to deliver a, a payload of some kind, we're doing the exact same thing at Locus except phage or our virus, right? Phage have evolved over billions of years to attack only bacteria cells. And so we, we think we have something really special. We have the world's safest and most powerful syringe to reach into the human body and deliver a payload quite specifically in some zone of the body. And we're beginning to get into delivering nanobodies and, and are potentially starting to smoke out some other payloads, some much larger enzymes and or proteins. We're seeing some really solid data in the early days, and we think that's going to underpin some pretty big moves, not just from what we're doing in infectious disease, but be able to parlay out into both immunology and oncology in pretty short order. Great. And, and given the sheer breadth of opportunities as you describe them in the infectious disease space, talk to us a little bit about how you went about selecting the first couple of indications that you pursue and perhaps any tips or tricks along the way that you've learned around indication selection frameworks. Yeah. You know, it, you pick up all kinds of things from venture discussions along the way. So this is a platform technology. 
Most people value platform technologies off the lead asset. You need that lead asset to both be a combination of the fastest thing that you can definitively get a positive signal on that's safe, obviously. And it needs to be against the commercial market that somebody cares about. And from there, every other indication that you're working on would have value if your lead asset proves successful off a platform. And so like every technology that comes out of a university, most professors and students work in E. coli. It's not everything you can find, but lots do. E. coli was certainly where we had our biggest jump. And so we were just furthest along with E. coli for even a couple of years. When we really broke down the E. coli space, there were really sort of two areas to go after that made sense for our technology. One was recurrent urinary tract infections, which is an interesting one. We could probably talk about that for a second. The other was just bloodstream infections. So we've known for a long time that upwards of 30% of the deaths on the planet are caused from sepsis. Sepsis can be any bacteria, but really there's a dominant sort of five or six that are in there. Great recent article from The Lancet that came out that really pinpointed down very specifically from data collected as recently as 2019. Now, E. coli, Pseudomonas, staff, like all your typical players, these are the big boys that really do the damage out there. And so bloodstream infections are great to go after, but obviously a very tricky patient population, right? Typically, you're in the hospital, you're on death's door, usually from something else, not the bloodstream infection. And so those are very risky rescue operations, And so we looked at recurrent urinary tract infections as something that was this great balance of patient populations that were in trouble, but not eminently. Have some time to be able to work with the recurrent means you you already know your, your doctor, your patient, you're dealing with a frontline therapy that failed. You're not necessarily going after the graveyard of complicated urinary tract infections, which is where I think a lot of dead bodies sit in infectious disease. You're dealing more with sort of 18 to 50-year-old female, you know, recurrent UTIs. They're quite debilitating. They have a massive detrimental effect on, you know, your quality of life. If you're dealing with three, four, five of these in a given year and down for two, three-week periods at a time, I mean, not only are you immensely frustrated, but it's it's quite disturbing to hold the career, relationships, all the like. So you have a Patient population that has desire and means typically is not really comorbid, and there's a lot of them. Uh, Unfortunately, there's about 2 million recurrent UTIs in the country per year, and so that's a patient population that brings us back to the good old days, you know, not orphan drug designations, but, you know, millions and millions of patients. And so we looked at all of that. We looked at how far was the tech What was the commercial opportunity? What was the regulatory path to get there? And and we felt that recurrent uh, urinary tract infections were the right place to be. And we were luckily able to attract BARDA to come along for the ride with us. We were fortunate enough to get awarded a $140 million program back in Q4 of 2020. We've been working together with BARDA since then, really, to advance the lead asset now into what should be our our first set of phase two, phase three combination patients coming up here, hopefully before the end of the first half of of this year. So there's a nice long-winded answer to your original question. No, that's great. Um, Thanks for the the additional detail. You you talked a little bit about just deal-making 
So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why you felt that striking partnerships at your stage was important. And then also perhaps talk a little bit about where you see dealmaking going in the future and perhaps the repercussions of our approach to the evolution of dealmaking across biotech and pharma. Yeah, I, I think I had always been familiar with the deals from having been on the other side and acquiring these companies to fold into places like Valiant. And obviously you look for, I mean, whatever you can find really, but platform techs that have a variety of assets at various stages of the clinical pipeline are very attractive, especially if you believe in the platform. And so my analysis is very familiar with the deal terms and the money that flows out to these companies. And so as we really looked at the sort of landscape of what did we need to prove out a platform like this? We thought interlacing dilutive and non-dilutive deals was a really smart way to build a company. In addition, when we had first started the company back in 2015, I knew manufacturing was going to be brutal. You've been in the space for a long time, but nobody wants to work with phage. I can assure you nobody wants phage in a large molecule production plant. I used to be the guy that would tell you, no way. You, there's no way you're getting through our quality <laughs> agreements. I, that's absolutely not bringing in a virus, especially not one that attacks E. coli anywhere close to the plant. Like We don't even want to talk to you to bid it out. And so I knew we were going to have big problems getting this stuff manufactured, but I also knew how to build these plants. At the very end of 2017, we closed our Series A. In the very beginning of 2019, we closed Johnson & Johnson. So in between those two things... We knew we were trying to raise capital to get a plant built. I had sort of bootstrapped a Alexandria real estate lab, converted it into a phase one production facility, little 5,000 square foot, large molecule manufacturing zone, and had built the quality system up to get that. And then, you know, parlayed it. We just finished it not that long ago, a, a 10,000 square foot viral vector production facility. I'd say we did it the right way. We run, we won ISPE's facility of the year. And lo and behold, you know, a lot of our deals basically have manufacturing that comes along for the ride so that we can control production, control the timing, control what goes onto the lines. And it just gives us a lot more control over advancing our partners' programs and our own programs, and also gives us this mix of revenue generating cash flow. It's been a much different way to build the company. And I think had we not done it that way a long time ago, we probably would have never survived. It's been a great way to build the business. And you know, I guess Raul, I always say, I guess there's advantages and disadvantages to being a serial entrepreneur. Um, I think having some operational experience in my background and some P&L responsibility really helped this particular company not only stay afloat, but grow. And I think as well, based on the number of additional deals we're sort of working on in the research stage that are not announced yet with various partners, I would say, you know, we're not done our last deal by any stretch. So more, more is coming as people really start to try to continue to break open this relationship between bacteria and human disease. And Paul, any predictions or perhaps warning signals around deal-making that you can share. So more specifically, I think overall deal-making and the size of deals has increased dramatically over the last decade or so. But what implications 
does deal making have on how other entrepreneurs are approaching building out a business? Yeah, I mean, I guess I probably have a unique feel of this, just having been on both sides. I certainly have been on deal teams that purchased assets that were in phase threes that failed out that I was incredibly disappointed in the team that we had done the acquisition of. I think if you look at all of the investments that venture has made, let's take oncology for what it's worth, right? You you now have, as of the end of last year, over 5,000 venture investments in oncology treatments you are slicing and dicing up that commercial market so many times. Even if your technology works, there's no market for you to go get. And I think you know that philosophy of entrepreneurs and the venture community that supports them to basically, I always call it beg and burn, right? You beg for dollars and get a whole bunch of money in your bank account, and then you burn it straight down. Beg for more dollars, burn it straight down. You're basically, you're betting on your last beg gets you to a phase two proof of efficacy endpoint that then you can flip the company. But there's too many of them. And even at that, I think you also have too many strategic deals that have not resulted in an actual BLA with a product that actually achieves the target market projections that were in the deal. At some point, you're going to see, I think, strategics that are more acquiring going entities that have made it through the BLAs and starting to actually prove they can penetrate the market, you know, you may find some strategics begin to get back into the discovery game, which, you know, we all know they exited in mass. I mean, we saw this trend 20 years ago starting to come, but by 10 years ago, it was pretty heavy duty. But at some point, you know, at the end of the day, these are businesses. Businesses need free cash flow. You need to generate free cash flow. You still are looking down the barrel of this massive patent cliff for these strategics. Picking up billion-dollar assets that get written off within a year is not the formula to get to free cash flow. So at some point, you know, even though there's all this cash on the sidelines, I, I think you're beginning to see some of this come to a head now. I mean, for all the cash that all these strategics have, I don't know if we see that much M&A activity, at least not what we were all expecting to see. It's only mid-March. But, you know, I I think everybody was expecting to see a lot more deals than what we're seeing right now. And I think that hesitation is you can't just have a 20 patient phase 2A trial with data and then say, I want $10 billion for my platform. There's been too many failures in that realm that provide hesitation. I think that's a change that maybe forces entrepreneurs to make sure that they're not begging and burning, that they're actually begging and building going entities, and then they have the financial wherewithal to get through phase three, get through commercial launch, penetrate a market, and, and potentially bring a couple more assets of the platform forward. And now you're talking about a multi-asset deal, which frankly, those are the most attractive. 10 years ago, when we were pulling these off at Valiant, that's what we were looking for. We were looking for a portfolio, not just a single drug. And those, I think, maybe we'll get lucky and that trend will begin to sort of go in the right direction. And Paul, for, again, all the folks that are, let's say, bio-curious or are also uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, given all that you've achieved across various sectors within the life sciences industry, I would love to ask you, what's one piece of advice that you would want to provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? The early years are really important and you do want to get a jump. I certainly learned some valuable lessons. 
most well-funded venture endeavors get funded out of a venture entity. They bring together an invention from a university with their own money and they go. So, you know, that is the traditional biotech path. We didn't fit in that convention. I was the executive, you know, me and my colleagues kind of bankrolled the early stages of this. So it's a different structure. What we learned, and it wasn't too late, but it was painful to get through the valley of death. Go West. There's more money in San Francisco than Boston by a lot. It is not comparable. It is incomparable. It's definitely 4X at a minimum. The money that's coming from tech, there's so much of it, they have to spread out into bio. And so almost every major tech venture group has created a bio funds, bio dedicated funds, bio dedicated teams. And the competition in San Francisco creates a much more founder friendly place for you to be able to get your business up off the ground. They create much more, in my opinion, collaborative syndicates ones that know each other well, ones that work together well, ones that actually have solid connections to help push you. And, you know, just I wish I had learned that lesson in 2016 instead of 2017. And that can be a long, long haul across a very dry desert. That's probably my best piece of advice I could give to any early state. Go West. Great advice. Well, Paul, Thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to chat and and for sharing a little bit of all that you've learned over your career. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. This was really fun. I I appreciate the time and, and thanks for having Locust join. Same here, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.